following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Amen. Well, you can turn to Ezra chapter 5. And of course, we were, uh, took a break last week uh, with uh, the college team being in town. And uh, praise the Lord for a wonderful week together and I'm uh, going to jump back into Ezra this morning. Uh, since it's been a couple weeks uh, since we were in this series, just want to take a moment to, to review where we are uh, so that we can properly feel the weight of, of what's going on in, in this passage. Uh, and as well, some of you haven't been here, so I need to know where we're at. So, uh, really, the story of the book of Ezra begins before the events in the book in, in 586 B.C., right? So, so that's when uh, the Babylonians uh, came in, they invaded Jerusalem, and, and they destroyed the two central marks of God's favor and Israel's hope for the future. They destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, and, and they took down the Davidic line of kings, And we've talked about the fact that it was absolutely devastating to the Jews that that took place. But but then, some 50 years later, God did something incredible, just as He had said. The Babylonians were defeated, and and King Cyrus of the Persians allowed some 42,000 Jews to, to return from Babylon to come all the way home to Jerusalem to rebuild their kingdom. Now, now yes, it's true that, that rebuilding their lives and Rebuilding the temple, these were, these were overwhelming tasks. But, but they went to work. They trusted God. They began a pressing forward. And, and, for, and so they worked. And, and, and after a short time, they, they finished the foundation of their temple. And, and Ezra 3 ends with the fact that they celebrated enthusiastically that God had allowed them to complete the foundation of their temple. But last time... A couple weeks ago in Ezra chapter 4, we saw that all that joy turned to gloom when the Samaritans came into town and began oppressing them. And they even turned the Persian royal court against the Jews. And they made life so difficult that the Jews ultimately gave up on the work. Everyone went home. And for roughly 16 years, they did little, if any, work on the temple. And just imagine the struggle for the Jews during those 16 years. Now, are we ever going to finish our temple? Is God going to keep all the promises that He has made to us? You know, why would God ask us to uproot our comfortable lives in Babylon? We were making money, life was good, and why would God ask us to uproot all of that, to come here, to live in poverty, and not even have our temple completed? They probably were wondering, maybe we should have just stayed in Babylon. Why why did we do all this? But but thankfully, God is not done. He is always faithful to His promise. And and Ezra 5 and 6 record the the climax of, of the first return of Jews to Israel as God enables them to finish their temple and to rejoice in His blessing. But just like everything else in the book of Ezra, nothing comes easy. It's going to be hard once again. And and today we're going to look at Ezra chapter 5, and and we're going to pick up the story by reading verses 1 through 5. So it says, 
Uh, when the prophets Haggai, or when, said, when the prophets, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Jehozadak arose and began to rebuild the house of God which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At that time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their colleagues came to them and spoke to them thus, Who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? Then we told them accordingly what the names of the men were who who were reconstructing this building. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, And they did not stop them until a report could come to Darius, and then a written reply be returned concerning it. So let's talk first in verses 1 and 2 about Israel's situation and about the inspiration that God gave. And um, and so just to back up for a moment, uh, chapter 4 ends by telling us that it is now the second year of the reign of Darius, which we know from chronology and from outside sources is 520 B.C. So it's been roughly 16 years since the temple construction began in 536, and probably it all stopped pretty quickly because of the work of the Samaritans. So for roughly 16 years, little if anything has happened at the Temple Mount. It's just kind of sitting there empty. They're they're probably, well they are, offering sacrifices on the altar, but they have done Hardly anything to build the building. But then, God raises up two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to inspire the people to build. And and we actually have a record of much of what they said in in the two books that are named after them, Haggai and Zechariah. And so, I want to spend a little bit of time today reading some of what these guys wrote, because, because they provide some fascinating context for the story of Ezra, and as well... These guys are powerful preachers. I mean, Haggai in particular, man, he, he could shuck the corn, you know. And so, so turn in your Bibles to Haggai chapter 1, all right? So keep your finger in Ezra 5, because we'll be back, and turn over to the book of Haggai. So uh, if you don't know where Haggai is, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are the last three books of your Old Testament. So if you happen to get into the New Testament, just go left a few pages, and you will come across the little book of Haggai. And I want to read verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1. Haggai 1, verse 1. It says there, and that's a hard one to find. It says in Haggai 1, 1, In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, or Jeshua, same guy, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? Will this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. 
and he who earns earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains and on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all labor of your hands. Now, now notice a few things from this passage about what's going on in Israel. So, now, now first of all, we need to back up and, and remember uh, from Ezra chapter 4 that they are being oppressed. So Ezra 4 says that the Samaritans had discouraged the people, they had intimidated the people, and they had also hired counselors in the Persian court against them. So, so, so they were dealing with this, this oppression, and, and they had made life so difficult, again, that they had stopped construction on the temple. And you can imagine that for roughly 16 years now, they suffered under that pressure. And it probably caused a heavy cloud over all of life, not, not just the construction on the temple. And yet, while life was difficult, Haggai tells us that they were settled. You know, he says there in, in chapter 1, verse 4, that they were dwelling in paneled houses. And, you know, that, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but, but, but you know, you think of, of cabins and very rough structures. The idea there is their homes were comfortable. They had nice paneling on the walls and and they were beautiful and, 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 and very nice. And so, and so they were settled in their homes. Not like they had been when they first entered the land. And yet, despite that, Haggai tells us that they were outside of the blessing of God. Have you ever felt like your life is what he describes there in verse 6? You work so hard. And you try to do everything right, but your profit never seems to match your effort. Seems like you know, money just falls out of your pockets. Time just kind of evaporates and like, like it was never there. And that's where Israel was. Haggai tells us in verse 6 and then again in uh, verses 9 through 11 that, that, that God, uh, was, that, that, they're, that, they're, uh, that, that, that no matter how hard they worked, Prices were low, crops were small, and they just couldn't get ahead. And imagine what it would be like to have a prophet come along and say, the reason you don't have the things that you think you should have is because God is against you. God is judging you for your sin. Now, and the reason, now that probably justified the fact that they had neglected building the temple by saying, well, well, well we're poor. We, we've got to take care of ourselves and we've got to make sure we've got money in the bank and plenty of food in the, in the bin and, and that life is comfortable. But God says, you have been so focused on yourselves and you have neglected my house. Your, your, your houses are paneled and beautiful. My house isn't even built. And, and, and the principle here is, is God says to them, you need to put me first. And if you put me first, I'll take care of the rest. The idea is similar to what we see Jesus saying to us in Matthew 6, verse 33, where he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, 
and all these things will be added to you. But Israel wasn't listening. They were so consumed with themselves and their priorities, and they had neglected the things of the Lord. And then something else we, we read here in the book of Haggai is that they had grown unholy. So, so look down at chapter 2 and notice what it said in verses 10 through 14. It says there on the 24th of the ninth month, so this is three months uh, after his first prophecy, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, ask now the priests for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if one is who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, it will become unclean. Then Haggai said, so is this people and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now, now we don't probably all understand all the little details of what's going on in this passage, but what should be very clear to us is that Israel had grown unholy. They were defiled by the things of the world, and they had not separated themselves to the Lord, and as a result, God had separated them from His favor and His blessing. So in sum... After 16 years, you know, when the people first got there, they were excited, they were fired up, they went right to work building the temple. But after 16 years, they had grown calloused and cold. And God's favor towards them had cooled with it. But, but thankfully, God didn't abandon His people. No, no, instead, he, he graciously raises up Haggai and Zechariah and He puts a prophecy in these men's mouths, and, and they call the people to repentance. And specifically, they're, they're, Haggai here is saying, put God first. Put God first. And build the temple. You know, prioritize the, the worship of God. Now, now, you might wonder, well, why is that such a big deal? I mean, why is it so important to God that they build Him a temple? And I want to read this quote by Alec Motier. He, he gives a good answer. He says, the house, speaking of the temple, was the outward form of the real presence of the Lord among his people. To refuse to build the temple was at best saying that it did not matter whether the Lord was present with them. And at worst, it was presuming on divine grace that the Lord would live with his people even though they willfully refused to fulfill the condition of his indwelling that he had laid down. It amounted to seeking grace but refusing the means of grace. Not to build a house was not to want the Lord as and for Himself. Do we ever do that? Now we want God's blessing, but we don't really want to do all the hard work of obedience and sacrifice and faithfulness that He requires of us. And that's where Israel was. And as a result, notice the encouragement that Haggai gives in, in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He says, now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. So God says, it's time to build. 
It is time to get to work. And you may not think that you have the resources or the time or, or the energy to do this. But if you just step out in faith, if you obey my will, then you will see me work and you will see me bless. And, um, and returning to Ezra chapter 5, we notice the, the little note at the end of, of chapter 5 verse 1. The people called them to build. And it says at the end of verse 1, it says that the name of the God of Israel who was over them was with them. So, so yes, God had challenged them to do something very hard. And this was an overwhelming task. But God says, I am with you. And, and throughout Ezra 5 and 6, we're going to repeatedly see that God was with the people as they obeyed Him, as they were faithful. So, so yes, it, is, is it ever difficult to put God's agenda and God's priorities ahead of your own? Absolutely. Is it ever kind of scary to, to put the offering in the offering plate or, or to give up time with something over here to go serve the Lord? Absolutely. But God always sees and God is always faithful when we put His priorities ahead of our own. And thankfully, the people responded. And, and we see that in verse 2, that, that Zerubbabel, the governor, and, and Joshua, the, the high priest, they rallied the people to build. And, and notice the little note at the end of verse 2. It says, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So, so Haggai and Zechariah are right there by their side. They're cheerleaders. Keep going, guys. Keep pushing. You can do this. God's going to be faithful. And they're preaching to the people and you know, they're out there you know, rallying the people to do the work that God had called them to do. And I'd like to read a couple prophecies from Zechariah because again, they provide a good context and, and they're just beautiful words. So, so turn over to the book of Zechariah. Hopefully you didn't totally lose your place because Zechariah is right after Haggai. And so Zechariah chapter 3. I want to look at a prophecy to Joshua and as well a, a prophecy to Zerubbabel. So, Zechariah chapter 3. I want to read verses 1 through 7. You know, again, these are words of encouragement that God gave to these guys as they're trying to build the temple. And, and this is a vision, all right? So, that's helpful context, a vision that, that Zechariah has. It says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways, and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts and I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. Now, now there's a lot going on in this passage, and, and frankly, we don't have time to deal with every little detail uh, of this prophecy. 
But, but this is an, an awesome picture of the God's grace that, that we know today in the Gospel. So, so Jeshua, the high priest here, he is, is representative in this vision of, of the nation of Israel. And, uh, and like a priest, and a priest should be holy and pure, right? You can't be a priest if you're dirty. But, but, but the, the idea here is that Israel, like Jeshua is represented here, was filthy. They had sinned against God. I'm reading through First and Second Corinthians in my devotional time, and they were filthy. They had sinned. They deserved to be. They deserved the judgment that God had brought on them. And God would have been entirely just to just forget about them and leave them in Babylon. And I love the little detail here that Satan is right there. You know, Satan's you know standing before God, and he's you know, look at those guys, God. They're wicked. They're evil. They deserve wrath. They deserve judgment. You can't do anything nice for them. Look at how they've sinned against you. Satan's making all these accusations, and and yet God graciously responds, and he says, I have plucked them from the fire, meaning there that he had brought Israel out of captivity. And then he says in verse 4, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with festal robes. That's a beautiful picture of what God does for us in the gospel. That that I am a sinner. Before Christ, without Christ, I am wicked. I am evil. God says I am filthy before Him. And I have no right to come into His presence. And and yet what God has done for me in Christ is He's replaced all my filth with the righteousness, the purity, the beauty of His Son. And and it's an incredible picture of of God's mercy and grace. And despite Israel's failures, God says to Joshua in verse 7, I have forgiven all your sin. And if you honor me, if you put me first, I will give you free access among those who are standing here, the angels. You can dwell in the presence of God. You can enjoy His grace. You can draw near to me and have all my blessings. You know, and it's interesting to read through a prophecy like that and imagine Jeshua after a really rough, hard day. You know, they're out there trying to build this temple and things are going wrong. And and he's just, you know, flabbergasted with what's going on. And Zechariah shows up and says, let me kill you. Let me share a vision with you from God. Keep going, man. God's going to be faithful. And and then look at another uh, another encouragement in in chapter 4 of Zechariah, uh, verses 6 through 10. This is probably one of the most famous passages in Zechariah. Zechariah 4, verses 6-10. through 10. It says, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And what are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain. And he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace. Grace to it. Also, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the earth. Now, I... I love to, to imagine what was probably taking place and, and what the background is 
uh, to this, uh, this prophecy. Because you know, imagine, you know, Zerubbabel is the governor. Imagine how hard it had to be you know, leading this massive construction project. You know, think of all the details that have to go into it. And you know, Zerubbabel, he's busy you know, trying to deal with, with, with all these different things that are taking place. And, and just imagine the, the two little voices he has going on. You know, so on one hand, he's got the young guys who are working on the project. And they're coming to him and they're like, Zerubbabel, this is so hard. This is so much work. You know, we've got to go home and take care of our crops. We don't have time to do this. Or, you know, this guy over here is a moron. And, you know, and so he's dealing with all the young guys over here complaining and whining about how hard the project is. And then the other side, he's got the old guys. And they're standing there like, boy, when we were kids, man, Zerubbabel, you know, you know about you know, the Temple of Solomon? It was awesome. I mean, Solomon's temple was big, it was large. You're, man, you know, you're just building this crummy little thing over here. You know, so these guys are like, this is too big. These guys over here are like, man, this is a bunch of nothing. And Zerubbabel probably is wondering at times, what am I doing? I mean, this is too much. And at other times, he's thinking, man, we are so small. We're a bunch of nothings working on a nothing project. And God answers with some powerful words. First of all, God encourages him in verse 6 to say that my spirit is strong enough to finish this project. You can get it done. And and then I absolutely love verse 10. Because do you ever feel like your investment in ministry, whether it's with your family or in the church or in some other location, is small and, and insignificant and worthless? You ever wonder, why am I working so hard and no one cares and nothing's going to come about it? Come of it. I mean, this is, this is a, a small thing. So why am I putting so much? And God says, says, Zerubbabel, do not despise the day of small things. Those ministries that you are tempted to believe are are worthless and meaningless. They are very important. So so do not get discouraged in your toil. Keep going because God sees. God is pleased and and God does great things through our small things. So keep going. So in sum, God moved. God encouraged the Israelites and the people responded by getting to work. So, so you can imagine, you know, they're, they're building away, they're struggling, but they're pushing forward. There's excitement to finish this project. But as always, nothing in the book of Ezra comes easy. And verses 3 through 5 go on to tell us in, in Zechariah, or excuse me, in Ezra chapter 5, that, that Tatanai the governor shows up in town nervous about this project. Now, now verses 3 through 5 sound a whole lot like saw last time in chapter 4. So, so, so last time Israel began to build, the Samaritans showed up in town, right? And they're, you know, and they're cranky, they're hostile, and, and they made life very difficult. You know, and so they quit. But, but then Haggai and Zechariah come along, they, they get excited, they start working again. And sure enough, you, know, you can imagine one day they're working away, they're, they're pounding away at stones, they're building stuff. And off in the distance, they see this this, cur- this caravan that's obviously very important rolling its way towards town. 
Now, now the big difference this time is that it's not merely the Samaritan officials who have showed up, you know, from just a local, you know, little province. This is the governor of the province beyond the river. So, so this guy, Katani, is responsible for the entire region from the Euphrates River to the Mediterranean Sea. So this guy is a legit bigwig, all right? He's not just a, a little guy uh, trying to be squirrely. And, and interestingly, I think this is just a, a complete side note, but it's fascinating to me. We actually have an archaeological record of this guy's name from 502 B.C. So, you know, sometimes we, we can wonder, did, did the Bible writers just kind of make stuff up? And, and we have this guy's name. This is a real dude. It's accurate. It is true. So, so Tatanai, he rolls into town, but thankfully, uh, he's not necessarily hostile towards the Jews like the Samaritans had been. No, instead, he's simply concerned because, because you know, again, this is the second year of Darius' reign, and during the first two years of Darius' reign, there had been all sorts of rebellions and all sorts of revolts that had sprung up all over the Persian Empire. So, so Tatanai, he hears about this big construction project going on in Jerusalem, and uh, he wants to make sure that they are not getting ready to revolt, and, and as well that they have proper clearance to build. But still, imagine how deflating it must have been to see the governor's entourage rolling into town. The Haggai had said, rise and build, and God will bless and then here come these guys, they'd stepped out in faith, and, and they're thinking, man, here we go again. They're going to shut us down, the government's going to keep working against us like they always work against us, and we're not going to get anywhere. So, so Tad and I shows up, and, and he does his investigation, and, and he asks them questions, and, and then after he asks them this question, he's responsible, his job is to get confirmation from the king that this, in fact, was a sanctioned project. Now, now, the problem is, is that Tat and I can't just pull out his phone and FaceTime, you know, you know, put up like, hey, you know, here I am, and look around, you know, you can see what's going on, sir, you know, is this okay? You know, he can't even send an email. He can't even send priority mail and get an answer back a couple of days later. No, he has to, you know, really snail mail, send a letter off to Darius all the way over in Persia and wait for it to come back. And the looming question is, will Tatanai shut the project down while he waits for confirmation? And that could be months. You know, and think about how discouraging that would be for the Jews, that they just got going on this thing. And Tatanai could easily say, you know, just to be sure, we're going to put this on pause till we hear back from the king. But, but God was working. And verse 5 says that the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until a report could come to Darius. So, so he looks with favor on them. And just think about the fact that, that after all that the Jews had endured for these past 16 years, how floored they must have been, like, like this guy works for the government, and he's going to make my life easier, not harder. What's going on here? And it had to be such an encouragement to these guys that, that after 16 years of, you know, again, remember that, that, that the Samaritans had, had paid off Persians to work against them and, and to oppose them. I mean, all of a sudden, this guy is favorable towards them. God is working. 
And it had to be such an encouragement to them that, again, Haggai had said, you put God first. You serve the Lord, and I will take care of you. And God honored his word. Now, of course, we shouldn't be shocked when God keeps his promises because God keeps promise after promise. But it's always exciting to see God work, isn't it? And we always struggle with doubting that he's actually going to come through. And we just have to make sure that that we recognize it when God works, that we give thanks. And every time we see God work, it should be encouragement to keep trusting and keep obeying. Because God is faithful. So again, seek his kingdom. Trust him. Obey him. And watch God take care of the rest. Well, well, Tatanai's permission was huge. But but the more pressing issue is the king's reply. Is the king going to say, yes, you can keep building? Or is the king going to say no? And verses 6 through 17 follow by recording Tatanai's ominous letter to King Darius. It says in verse 6, this is the copy of the letter which Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Sheth, Shethar Bozani and his colleagues, the officials who were beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent a report to him in which it was written thus, To Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we have gone to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God which is being built with huge stones and beams, are being laid in the walls, and this work is going on with great care and is succeeding in their hands. Then we asked those elders and said to them thus, Who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names, so as to inform you, and that we might write down the names of the men who were at their head. Thus they answered us, saying, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldeans, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. And also, silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken temple in Jerusalem and brought them to the temple of Babylon. These King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon, and they were given to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom, had a, whom he had appointed governor. He said to them, take these utensils and go and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt in its place. Then that Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. And from then until now, it has been under construction and it is not yet completed. Now, if it pleases the king, let a search be conducted in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon. If it be that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to rebuild this house of God at Jerusalem, and let the king send us his decision concerning this matter. Now, of course, Ezra here includes the entire letter, and he does so. I need to stay. I need to stand still. Oh, man, we'll try so, so the king uh, issues, or, or the, the entire letter is, is, is given here, and, and it seems to be that that's done to build suspense, because we don't really need this entire content necessarily. But, but, but he wants to build suspense, because a lot hinges on the king's answer. Is he going to stop the work, or is he going to show favor? And we aren't going to take a detailed tour through this entire section, Instead, I just want to highlight two important sections. 
So first of all, notice in verses 8 and 9, Tatanai's perspective on the work. It's kind of interesting here to, to have this Persian uh, governor's perspective on what the Jews are doing. And so he mentions in verse 8 that they are cutting huge stones, which is probably why he was a little concerned that they were building a fortress and not a temple. All right? And so, and so he mentions these huge stones, and he also mentions that they are uh, laying large beams. So large beams are intermingled with the stones. And of course, that would help make the structure strong and, and hold it together, especially in a part of the world where earthquakes were, were quite common. And he's clearly impressed because he says this work is going on with great care and is succeeding in their hands. Now, that's quite a statement, right, considering Israel's plight. They were beaten down. They were poor. There weren't very many of them. But, but he says they are doing a good job. They're doing it well, and they're making progress. So, so God strengthened them to work so effectively that this Persian governor is quite impressed with what this little group of Jews is accomplishing. God was at work. And then notice as well, uh, Israel's perspective on, on God's purpose in all of this in verses 11 and 12. So in verses 11 and 12, uh, Tatanai quotes what, what the Jews had told him. And I really appreciate the humility of these verses. Because again, the Jews had been oppressed. I mean, there had, had been all sorts of horrible things done to them by Babylon and, and probably as well by Persia. And... Uh, and instead of whining about the Babylonian you know, uh, uh, oppression and, and the Persian occupation, they just admit, hey, hey, we're not in this plight because of how evil you guys are. We're here because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath. They recognize their sin. And that's good because sometimes we have a million excuses for our problems. But we refuse to look in the mirror. But the Jews humbly told Tatanai that it was their fault that they were in this mess. And of course, we're also wise to, to always evaluate our problems first by looking at ourselves. You know, don't always look, first of all, to be a victim to someone else's sins. We always need to look in the mirror and, and notice our own. How did I fail? How could I have done better? How have I contributed to my plight? But I also appreciate in verses 11 and 12... The, the, the boldness of the Jews. Because again, they're looking a Persian official in the face. And these guys, they think they're really important. And the king of Persia, he thinks he is really important. But rather than praising Persian power and glory as sovereign over their situation, they say, God is the one who judged us. And God is the one who's at work today. Now that's not great diplomacy. You know, if you want to butter up this guy, you know, get him to look favorably on you, 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 you bow down and you tell him how great and powerful and glorious he is. But instead they say, God is sovereign. And that's a great example for us as well because it's so easy to be consumed with human powers and concerns and solutions. It's important that we step back and look at all of life with eyes of faith, understanding that God is sovereign, not me or any other human power. Well, well, that's where we're going to stop for today in the text. 
Uh, but next week, we'll look at Darius' reply in, in Ezra 6 and, and, and the answer that comes and, and what God does afterwards. But I just want to close up today with, with three applications. And the first you know, application of, of all this in chapter 5 is that the way of faith is rarely easy. The way of faith is rarely easy. You know, again, just think about the emotions, the, the highs and lows of this passage. You know, imagine the excitement after Haggai inspired the people to build. And we're going to do this. And then imagine the fear when they see Tatanai and, and all of his, of his officials rolling into town. You're plugging away. You know, here comes, you know, here comes these officials. And the helium around the project just it's gone. And they're going to shut us. I mean, you, can't you hear the guys? Can't you hear the, you know, the, the Debbie Downers? Oh, they're going to shut us down. Oh, they're going to, this is all going to be bad. They're going to kill us. You know, they're going to take our food. And, you know, you can imagine just all the, yeah, that's going on around the building site. And, and they're wondering, you know, God, why, why can't you just make anything easy? Like, like we've tried so hard. Why, why can't you just make something easy? And do you ever feel that way? There have been many times I've thought, you know, God, you know, can't you just let something be easy? And of course, sometimes he does, but we don't appreciate it those times. But, but Ezra is a powerful reminder that, that the way of faith is rarely easy. And that's because God generally does his greatest works, not through ease, but through hardship. And the sooner that we accept that, the better off we will be. And as well, the better equipped we will be to grow through the difficulty instead of whining and complaining and just being focused on getting out of it. Folks, we need to understand the way of faith is rarely easy. But while that is the case, a second truth I want to emphasize is that God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. You know, God did not abandon his people. Instead, he raised up two mighty prophets to inspire his people. And God worked in the hearts of Jeshua, Zerubbabel, and the people, and they responded. And God gave them favor with Tatanai. You know, God was going to make sure that his temple got built because he never breaks a promise. And the same is true for us today. You know, maybe you're struggling to trust the Lord. Or maybe you've got some sin struggle in your heart that you think will never go away and there is no hope for progress. You know, maybe it's that there's a relationship that seems irreconcilable. Maybe you're facing some trial that seems too big to bear. But whatever it is, do not despair and do not be overwhelmed by the hardship because God keeps his promise. He is always faithful. And then a third application is, is put God first at all times. Put God first at all times. You know, the question of Haggai 1 verse 4 is so convicting. Haggai asked the people, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? That's so convicting for these people, and it's convicting for us because God could ask us similar questions many times. You know, is it time for you to grow your bank account? 
Is it time for you to to chase this hobby? Is it time for you to, to build this incredible career? Is it time for you to build your name? Well, you neglect God's great commission purpose and the things that God has called you to do. You know, all those things, they have their place, right? You have to take care of your family. You should save. It's good to have, you know, ways to refresh yourself. But we always have to be very careful that all those other concerns of life do not crowd out what is most important. You know, how, how sad it would be if you're spending all your time dwelling in your paneled house and just live, you know, enjoying life and neglecting the things that matter most. So consider how you are investing your time, your money, your energy. Are you neglecting what matters most to the Lord? And it might be, you think, well, well pastor, I mean, I, you know, I, I've, got, I've got dreams, I've got plants. I've got things that I've got to do. They're really important. And I wonder, are they really as important as you think they are? And what does it say about your faith in the Lord that you think, you know, I don't have time to go to church or I don't have time to do this or I can't give to the Lord's purpose because I gotta get, I've got to get here. And you don't trust that the Lord actually can take care of all of that if you simply do what he has called you to do. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. So it doesn't mean we're irresponsible, but it does mean that we put God's priorities first. So put the Lord's priorities first, and watch the Lord add all these things to you. Trust him, and he will be faithful. Father, we thank you so much for this passage We thank you as well for uh, the the passages we read in Haggai and Zechariah. And Father, I pray that you would cause all of us to consider our ways, consider our priorities, and consider your purposes. And Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to walk by faith through every hardship and difficulty and sorrow And help us to prioritize the things that matter to you above everything else. And so, Lord, please work among us. Please convict us, change us, and help us to live for the things that matter. In Christ's name, amen.